0: This summer, it's hot. We don't need to tell you. America's been suffering a catastrophic heat wave for more than a month. No part of the country has been immune. That means people are scrambling to cope. Recently, the president even issued the country's first ever heat wave hazard alert for workers. But there's one obvious no-brainer option for staying cool. And across the country, it's failing.
1: There should be no excuses to have any pools in Baltimore closed. Warm summer days ahead. Many city residents want to cool off in one of the city pools across Jacksonville. The pools opened earlier this month, but when we checked them today, our crews found pools shuttered and even one with green water.
2: It's a pool
0: that has needed renovations since 20, 30 years ago. However, uh, due to heavy rains... More than half of Boston's city pools closed this summer. Same thing happened in Jacksonville. And in Atlanta, all the outdoor public pools closed for the rest of the summer, before July even ended. Pool closures have plagued American cities for years. Officials blame crumbling infrastructure and recently lifeguard shortages. About a third of the nation's public pools were affected by staffing issues last year. According to the American Lifeguard Association, 2023 is as bad or worse.
1: We really just haven't prioritized swimming in this country.
0: Mara Gay writes for the New York Times editorial board. She's written about America's deteriorating public pools for years, calls it a personal obsession.
1: It is a public health crisis. There are 4,000 Americans who die of drowning every year. It's the leading cause of death for children one to four and one of the leading causes of death for children overall. And yet we think of swimming in the United States like a luxury, that's how it's treated, rather than a human right, which I believe it to be.
0: There are more than 10 million private pools in America, but Mara says there are just 300,000 public ones. And that's not just an inconvenience, it's a public health disaster.
1: It's not only heartbreaking, it makes me angry because since Americans don't have a safe place to swim or learn how to swim, they're drowning instead. When I go out in Brooklyn and I see kids playing in the sprinkler of a public housing project, when they could be swimming in a pool, it makes me very angry and very sad. I don't think we should have something so basic and elemental and just human as swimming, be off limits to anyone.
0: Today on the show, America is hotter than ever. So where are the pools? I'm Mary C. Curtis, and for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around.
1: This episode is brought to you by Discover.
0: A 1933 survey of Americans' leisure activities found that just as many people swam for fun as went to the movies. So I'd like to get a little bit into the background. How many public pools were around in the 1920s and 1930s?
1: During the Great Depression, the country invested in in building dozens, scores, of public pools, large public pools across the country under the Works Progress Administration under FDR. And so you had pools like the Astoria Pool in New York. You had the Audubon Pool in New Orleans that um, came a little before that time. And these were meant to be enjoyed, and they were large public pools. And so that was kind of an exciting era. But of course, what we also know, we have to remember, is that these pools were segregated, many of them, most of them, by race. And so Black Americans um, found themselves shut out of many, many pools across the country that were meant for the public.
0: That all changed after World War II and after Brown v. Board of Education. Mandated integration led to a mass exodus of white Americans from cities to the suburbs. And after that, the number of private swim clubs exploded and public pools languished. Some were simply neglected. Others were padlocked or filled in with concrete.
1: You know, you had this kind of, slow movement away from public pools as an essential piece of infrastructure. And instead, you had wealthier Americans, white Americans, who were building private pools in their backyards, who were uh, joining country clubs, um, or you know, even creating just homeowner associations with pools and kind of withdrawing into that private space. And so you have now a, a situation where generations of some American families have been swimming and generations of others have been unable to learn, afraid of the water, timid around the water. It's really endemic and it just, it's so solvable. And that's what really gets me going. Let's talk
0: about what really happened to public pools. What do they look like? Because a lot of people, when they talk about them, it's really not with affection.
1: (sighs) One of the secrets in America is that wealthier communities actually never stopped investing in their public pools. So whereas many of us who live in big cities like New York, you think of our public pools, and of course, they're a, a critical amenity and resource. At the same time, they're surrounded by concrete, they are filled with rules, like the, you know, the kind of color shirt you can wear, you have to shower first, you have to bring a lock, The lines are often really long, Um, the hours are sometimes erratic, and it's not really uh, designed necessarily to make you feel uh, like this is somewhere that you want to be. And that is, I think, really a miscarriage of justice to the public because there are wealthier communities across the United States, including in the New York suburbs, and certainly not limited to that whose public pools are the crown jewel of their towns. I mean, we know that the town of Scarsdale, which is a a community in Westchester, a wealthy community in Westchester, has a beautiful town pool surrounded by uh, beautiful, perfectly mowed uh, lawns. We know that public pools are a uh, value add. We know so because these wealthy communities never stopped investing in them. And that for me really tells you everything you need to know
0: Why are public pools then, and parks for that matter, not a priority for so many city governments?
1: It's a great question. Every city budget, I've covered many city budgets. It's really frustrating because you have to make, you have to prioritize, you know, America, as Americans feel the heat from climate change during the summer. My hope is that they will be clamoring for uh, more pools, but it's hard because you're competing with Um, police departments, right, for budgets. You're competing with all kinds of other needs. And it's not to say that any of those aren't important. Of course, many of them are. It's just to say that this is not something that is a luxury. This is actually just essential.
0: You argue that the lack of public pools in America isn't just annoying or an inconvenience, particularly in the heat, but it's dangerous. Why is that?
1: Well, one reason is that when Americans don't have a public pool that is enjoyable to visit um, and easily accessible, they are unlikely to learn how to swim. Um, A majority of Americans, according to a Red Red Cross survey, cannot swim um, or swim well. So the other reason is that when Americans don't have a safe place to swim, some of them will seek somewhere else to swim instead. And so that can look very dangerous. Uh, At least four teenagers have drowned, for example, in the Bronx River here in New York City. Um, In the past decade or so, there are eight working public pools in the Bronx for a population of 1.4 million people. So that's a really painful example of what can happen when you don't invest in these pools. Do we know how
0: common it is for Americans to die of drowning?
1: So drowning is the number one cause of death for Americans one to four years old. It is the number two cause of death for the next age group. And it is one of the leading causes of death for all Americans under the age of 24. So this is a public health crisis. Uh, 4,000 Americans drown every year. That's an average of 11 people a day that we're losing to drowning. And then you have about double that. Um, Uh, in near fatal drownings, which can be very serious medical events in, and sometimes life altering ones.
0: Well, it's interesting because you've talked about these cases. And so often these deaths are treated as, well, that's very sad. It's an accident. It's a personal tragedy for the family, but there is something much broader and systemic to this problem.
1: Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, you know, I think, when you do spend months talking to people who of all backgrounds have lost children to drowning, you learn a lot of things. Um, and it's not only about personal tragedy. One of the stories that brought this home for me, I, I interviewed a woman named Rachel Ross who lost her daughter, Abanesha, to uh, drowning as a adolescent. And they lived in New Orleans, which is a city that once had the largest public swimming pool in the Southern United States, um, the Audubon Natorium. But that pool closed in the 60s rather than open up to Black swimmers. And then it reopened um, years later uh, under a much smaller footprint. So the pool is, is not what it was. And, you know, Miss Ross talked a lot to me about her children and her daughter, Ibanezia, especially loving the water, always wanting to go swimming. And, you know, Miss Ross was a single mom. She didn't have a ton of money um, or time to take her kids to the pool. And she herself didn't know how to swim, but anything she could do to get her kids, you know, near the water, she would. And, you know, there weren't a lot of easily accessible public pools for them to get to. So, one day, you know, when they were invited to a barbecue, a friend of a friend's house, they just left at the chance to go swim. Um, these folks had a pool and the pool uh, doesn't sound like it was very well maintained. And so actually when Benezia drowned, her body was in the water uh, for several minutes floating just beneath the surface uh, before anyone noticed her because the water was that dirty, according to her mother. So this is a Black family in New Orleans that is just... But one uh, story in a country that has allowed generations to go without access to the water. It runs really deep uh, in this country and not just for Black Americans. And I think there's this perception in general in the United States, especially right now, you know, each man out for himself. And I, I really do believe that we're all poor when we think about uh, life that way and public goods that way. And I think this is a really brutal example of that.
0: I know that you've said that every group is affected, but I'm really glad you brought up the case of, of Ms. Ross. It seems like certain groups are most at risk and these are the same groups that are least likely to know how to swim. So we do see these patterns, why is that?
1: Oh, it really goes deep as you know. Um, really all the way back to slavery when Black Americans were uh, not only not allowed to read, which is, I think, more widely known, but oftentimes dissuaded from learning how to swim because that would have made it easier for them to escape enslavement. And um, also dogs could not track your scent through water. And so that's how deep this history runs. You know, I also just want to say, let me put it this way. When you think about the cost of racism, of anti-Black racism in the United States, it not only affects Black Americans, which should be reason enough for us to address this, it affects everyone. So this really is a national problem. It's a national crisis. Uh, Its history runs, as many of our national (laughs) crises do, through the history of white supremacy and of slavery and Jim Crow in the United States. I've even heard from People who are wealthy, who can't find a place to swim in cities like New York, for example. If you don't have a backyard swimming pool or if you don't belong to a country club, it seems you're out of luck. I hope that that makes Americans of many backgrounds as angry as it makes me.
0: After the break, how to fix our public pool crisis. Well, this summer, we did have a coalition of researchers publish the first ever U.S. Water Safety Action Plan that aims to reduce drownings over the next 10 years. What kinds of recommendations are in there?
1: Yeah, so this is great because the United States is actually one of the only countries, uh, one of the only Western countries that doesn't have a water safety plan, uh, which is a real issue. And so those experts have called for the government, the the White House and Congress to uh, develop a national surveillance plan, a data surveillance plan um, for drowning as a public health crisis, which is really key because we need much more information about how and why and where these drownings are happening in order to prevent them. Um, But they've also called for public awareness campaigns around water safety in general. And that can be anything from wearing a, a life vest while boating in open water, to knowing if your child is at increased risk or if you're you're at increased risk as an adult. Uh, children with autism are at increased risk, for example. Uh, 80% of children who drown are boys. So we know that boys are at increased risk. So I think there's a lot in that plan that can hopefully be uh, taken and, and uh, run away with with uh, the federal government.
0: This plan was developed by nonprofits and experts, and not the federal government. You said, Maybe the federal government could take some tips.
1: Right. So one of the key recommendations in the water safety plan is an ask for the federal government to designate a federal agency, a single federal agency to oversee uh, drowning prevention in the United States. This should be, in my opinion, the work of government. You know, I don't want to denigrate the dozens of exceptional nonprofits across the country doing the work that the government so far has failed to do, but they cannot possibly reach every American. Even organizations that are well-known like the Red Cross or the YMCA cannot possibly teach every American how to swim, let alone do they have the pools to do so or the funding to do so. So this is really something that uh, the government, I believe, needs to address and needs to take ownership of. But when we're
0: talking about solutions, it seems that they're Two branches of solutions here, the infrastructure piece and then the education piece. So let's start with the infrastructure. What do you think it would take to build more public pools and to do something about the ones that already exist?
1: So the federal government is the entity that has the kind of funding that would be necessary to build a critical mass, which is what we really need, of public pools across the United States. But I also would hope that, um, you know, we're starting a conversation here. There are communities across the country, uh, city, county officials who may say, hey, I may not have the budget to build a public pool right now, but we could renovate ours. We could reopen the one in in the school that we have downtown. Or, hey, maybe we can keep it open a little bit longer. Maybe we can pay the lifeguards a little more. Or if you are a town that sits on a river or a lake, maybe we can put up some signage across, across that body of water to tell people where it's safer to swim or how deep the water is. Is it deep enough to dive? What's the current like? These are just very practical changes, I think, that um, could make an enormous difference.
0: What about the education piece? I know roughly half of all Americans either can't swim or can't swim very well. So what are some common misconceptions around swimming? And how do we ensure that more Americans
1: learn to swim correctly? It's a great question. You know, part of learning how to swim is learning how to uh, decide when and where it's safe to swim and and when and where it may not be safe to swim. So, for example... Uh, Being able to uh, say to yourself, well, you know what? The ocean's a little too rough for me today. Uh, What do you do if there's an undertow? Um, How do you deal with a riptide? These are just some basic and very practical uh, things and steps that can be taken. But I think overall, the approach has to change. You know, in the United States at this point, very few people, I believe, would allow uh, their children Uh, Or even themselves would want to go to a restaurant where you could smoke cigarettes all day. Very few people would put their infant in a car without a car seat. And yet, in the United States, a majority of Americans don't have the swimming skills needed to swim safely. And really, we're on our own.
0: So why do you love the water?
1: I think there's something about floating in a pool or in the ocean in particular for me that makes me feel like a child again, free, uh, free to play, to be buoyant, to uh, be silly and to feel kind of strong in my body, but also kind of at one with nature. I am a Black American and my father and his five siblings grew up You know, in part in South Carolina, actually, during Jim Crow. And I think in our family, swimming was really prized as a symbol of just how joy can be like resistance. Just that special joy from reclaiming a human experience that had been denied to Black Americans for so long and passing that down to me as an inheritance. And the way I look at that inheritance, it's meant to be shared. It's meant to uh, be for all of us. It's not something special that I should get because I grew up upper middle class. That's not what I was taught. That's not what I believe. This is a human right. And even if you end up not loving it as much as I do, you still deserve the chance to give it a try.
0: Thank you so much, Mara Gay, for joining us on what next.
1: Thank you for having me, Mary. It's been great.
0: Mara Gay is a member of the New York Times editorial board. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to Slate.com slash What Next Plus to sign up. What next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. were led by Alicia Montgomery, with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richman is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist at Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. Find me on Twitter. I'm at mcurtisnc3. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.